This time on Chew Diligence, a James Beard Award finalist whose restaurant Corvino has earned numerous national accolades. Now he's adding ravenous to the mix. Chef Michael Corvino. People, and we're in the Midwest, people don't eat donuts with seaweed in them that you're dipping in trout roe very often. But it, So it puts you maybe a little at ease or out of your comfort zone in a way. But then you're like, it's, it's creative and it makes you feel creative when you eat it. And mm-hmm. then it opens your eyes to try something else. Oh, well, maybe I'll try the oysters I haven't had. And I got in that kitchen and it was like, wait, cooking's the same everywhere. They're not all light years ahead of me. Like everything I learned is like applies in this big fancy kitchen in Chicago. So it was really, it was really cool to see that. Like it's a universal language, right? It's, you can take it anywhere. Welcome to the 41 Action News podcast studio for this episode of Chew Diligence. I'm Lindsay Shively here with Jill Silva. And first, the food, Jill. We're taping during the middle of restaurant week. Where have you been? I went to Brady's Public House. Mm. And this was pre-restaurant week, but to check out what was going to be happening for a story I did on Flatland. Um, So some of the best fish and chips in town, I think, or just any, you know what? Just about, just about anywhere. I th- that can be a greasy thing for me. It sounds so good at first, and mm-hmm. I get halfway through, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not happy with this anymore. Um, his is wonderful. Mm. Of course, he's from Ireland. Aha! And we will have him on the show soon um, because he will be coming on pre uh, St. Patrick's Day. Well, perfect timing. Yeah, but it's a good time to get out and check out his food. Um, you know, pub food can be a whole lot more um, upscale and chefy than you might think. That's the new verb that we're <laughs> going to use today is chefy. Chef. Chefy. <laughs> I, I know. I hate it, but there's, I don't know. I haven't invented another word yet. So. I get exactly what you mean. Yeah. Crafted. Crafted. Uh, truffle, deviled eggs, mm. um, a wonderful creme brulee with five farms. Um, oh, no, that stuff's amazing. Yeah. Irish yeah. cream. Irish cream. You got it. So, That's local, too. Yeah. Well, the, well, made from the milk of Irish cows, but crafted, <laughs> <laughs> crafted locally. There you go. Right. So, yeah. So pretty exciting. So check it out. Um, it's kind of an unlikely spot where it's located. There's not a lot around it yet, but hmm. On Troost. Awesome. Can't wait to have them on. Uh, the other voice you hear in the podcast studio is Chef Michael Corvino. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So you are also very busy in the midst of Restaurant Week. When you are yep. not uh, at your own delicious restaurant, where do you like to go eat? I am I have not been eating out a lot lately. Um, the last place I ate out was actually... Um, Right after the new year, I snuck out of town mm. to visit my sister in Boston. So, ooh, that's a good eating town. Mm-hmm. I and I've been on this fried chicken kick since we opened Ravenous. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, um, so I'm trying people with fried. You know, I've had had the Popeyes chicken sandwich a couple of times. You know, I've went back to Shake Shack chicken sandwich, but I got to try Bonchon. It's a Korean fried chicken chain that's hit the states now. Um, it's extraordinarily crispy. Mm. And it's, if you get the sweet one, it's almost candied, like crispy, caramely candy and, mm. and extremely spicy at the same time. 
Well, that sounds amazing. We're both really, shaking our heads. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was really fun. <laughs> That's tough research, man. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, the they do bulgogi tacos. So it's like a Korean rib, like braised beef with in tacos. And it's fun. So. Well, now we're hungry. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> uh, you heard Chef Michael mention Ravenous and, of course, Corvino Supper Club that we're approaching the three-year mark on. Three years on April 1st with... The restaurant's birthday is my birthday, so that's oh. always fun. He's an April Fool's <laughs> baby. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a fun choice back in the day when I was following you to the run-up to the restaurant and working on that story for the star. And I just reread it the other day, and I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he's got a birthday on <laughs> April 1st, and that is a crazy time to open a restaurant. But well, it was not kudos planned. to you. It was not planned that way. It's- <laughs> Most restaurants open far later than originally planned. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is uh, that is so true. But I remember that you also were very good about not putting the date too far out there. So by the time you told me and the photographer, you were truly ready to open. And that is the hardest thing about trying to cover some of these restaurants. Mm-hmm. Don't you think, Lindsay, is trying to figure out when their actual open date is if you're trying to do a feature beforehand everything from construction to licenses and just getting everything in place and and you're opening up an outdoor space for ravenous soon is that coming this spring yes we'll be opening outside in the spring and we've launched a sort of a ghost restaurant currently so monday through friday we're doing carry out and delivery out of corvino how has that been going it's been going really well it's it it it's super fun it we were so excited to launch this that we didn't want to wait when we got pushed back and didn't make the summer. So it's allowing us to get the food out there and really work on the food and hone the food in before we go outside. That sounds like a really fun concept. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of thrilled that you found a place for that cheeseburger because I think I <laughs> yes. said the first time I tasted it, this is going to be a big deal. Um, Definitely. <laughs> kind of you shrugged your shoulders, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, this is a great space for that. And you also have rock shrimp sandwich, right, on the menu? Currently, yes. So so talk a little bit about how you kind of, that, that's a little bit out there. And then you got cheeseburger. Everybody knows what a cheeseburger is. Talk about the menu a little bit. Definitely. Well, the rock shrimp sandwich, it's, I mean, it's a play on a, like a lobster roll or a shrimp roll. So it's a, a mayonnaise-based dressing. Um and this one's jacked with with miso and lots of citrus, mm. um, so it's super punchy. And then it's got it's got sour sour cucumbers in it, so it's just a lot going. And then salted cabbage, so it's crunchy. Um, I love rock shrimp. I think they're super sweet. The texture is really really fun. I just discovered them yeah. on a trip to Florida just like a year ago, and I was like, "Where have these been all my life? Mm-hmm. What's have you different? had them before? No, I haven't. Are they bigger, smaller than? They're- they're small. They're about the size of the, maybe the tip of your finger. Mm. And they're kind of lobstery. I mean, mm-hmm. even though their name is shrimp. Sure. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. And I'm not the biggest fan of Gulf shrimp. Generally, they have a more mo- like almost muddy flavor, if you will. Um, but rock shrimp are one of my favorite shrimps. So that's kind of the anomaly there. And this is on the For ravenous me. menu right now? Yes. yes. I love how you said right now because both so, of your menus change a lot, right? The idea with ravenous is that it the the staples will stay and that's what you'll come all the time for mm. but we're this first location is essentially our 
our test kitchen for ravenous. I want to grow ravenous and do do more. I there's definitely a goal of a full brick and mortar spot next. Um, that we'll grow from there and scale that in some sort of in some sort of way. So this is our this is our shake the hot dog cart that was Shake Shack outside of Eleven Madison Park for us. That's kind of the 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 thought thought for us because we, you can go to Corvino and have a wildly upscale experience, right? Absolutely. Well, you can you can get so many different experiences at Corvino. There's mm-hmm. a lot going on. You can you, you can go in just for that that beer and that snack at the bar. You can get medium to upscale dinner in the supper club and then we have a two and a half hour tasting menu Hmm. it's a different restaurant within it so now we have fast food all the way to tasting menu with everything in between at the crossroads (laughs) so you've covered all your bases in other words (laughs) absolutely whatever anyone wants to eat at any time it sounds like um so how do you put together so i met you when you were at the american and doing fine dining um and Corvino Supper Club has that element with the tasting room, but how, how do you approach a, um, the ravenous menu? How does that change up for what's going on in the kitchen and the thinking of what people want to eat? Because it's not probably changing as much or as involved as your um, tasting menu, but or maybe it is. Well, I, w- I would say with all of the food in... Now I can say all of the restaurants <laughs> that I have. I'm getting really comfortable with things that are not changing. And Corvino has so many staple dishes and items that people are coming back for. It's we do this. There's so there's so many. I can the seaweed grab. donuts. The seaweed donuts are never going to go anywhere. And they, <laughs> good. They started as a one of the handful of snacks that start the tasting menu. When uh-huh. you when you start the tasting menu. You, you eat, get a handful of snacks that you eat with your fingers. And the thought process behind that is that it it relaxes you and says this isn't going to be stuffy and, mm-hmm. awk- and awkward. That old, old classic fine dining, this is going to be fun. You're going to, you're going to, we do chicken fried snail right now with black garlic and parsley. So you're going to oh. grab that with your fingers and I don't know, then, then you have to sit there and say, do I, what, do I like that little bit of, <laughs> of, of, Parsley powder that's oddly sour and salty off of my finger, and, mm. and you know maybe you don't, but it's that to me that's make it's it's about the food and that experience, and it's not about some white gloves and ex, expensive chi- fine china and and on, onward. Um, but I'm getting really comfortable with those dishes that stay and people come back for them, and even on the tasting menu, I would say mm-hmm. been inspired by a handful of tasting menus that I've followed and been eating over the years, where if you think of if you think of these destination fine dining restaurants, they all have these classic dishes on their tasting menu. So when you go back, you go back for the oysters and pearls again at the French Laundry and the black truffle and white truffle and the egg every time. But then you get the new dishes that are different or seasonal as well. So mm-hmm. we're, we've developed quite a few of those on the tasting menu that I'm super proud of. And that's how... F- that food is tested and that food is really good. So if we're changing everything all the time and re- the restaurants with the chalkboard menus, the food isn't as tested or honed in. It's not as balanced. It's not as perfect. So Tweaked, right? It's a cool place to get comfortable. And then f- the fast casual side is all about that. The cheeseburger should be the same every single time. The fries should be the same every single time. So let's talk about the cheeseburger because <laughs> it's pretty famous. And what's the inspiration on that one? It was... Th- 
the diner style cheeseburger, a smash patty. It's a cheeseburger that I want to eat. And I think a, a lot of our, it's over the last, I mean, I don't know, four to five years, maybe I'll, all of all of these chefs are getting their kind of their head out of their ass and saying, "Let's do the cheeseburger right. Let's not do this gigantic, cold in the middle patty that you know it's three quarters of a pound." And it's the cheeseburger started a certain way. It was this smashed burger. It was the diner burger. The mid- it's such a Midwest thing too. And I'm hmm. it, I've been in the Midwest six years now. I found my wife here. I found our first restaurant here. So it's very Midwest, so I want to embrace that piece of the Midwest. And what I'm most excited about is it's extremely accessible food. Mm-hmm. I can access so many people so easily with this food. And fine dining and a long career of that, you get to this draining sensation of you're begging people to come in. And, oh, well, in eight months it's my anniversary and I'll come in with my, my girlfriend and fine dining, they'll come tomorrow. They'll come today. They'll be like, oh, I'm going to just click delivery because I don't feel like leaving the office. And it's so much more accessible. And that's why that's why we're, I'm cooking is to feed people. And I think your seaweed donuts are such like a great microcosm of what I, I feel like when I go to your restaurant because I have a husband who could eat caviar and roe by the bucket. And for me, it's not something that's always on my radar. But with these in the creme fraiche, it, it it seemed more approachable for me to eat, and it was delicious. And both of us enjoyed it equally. It's like these really approachable menu items mixed with these things that you might not try, and all of them in a way that is not intimidating at all. I love it. That's my favorite thing to hear. That's that's what when Christina and I conceptualized Corvino, that's what we were going for: is push some boundaries with flavors and combinations and technique of food push the hospitality program so in a sense you're almost uh, people and we're in the midwest people don't eat donuts with seaweed in them that you're dipping in trout roe very often but it so it puts you maybe a little at ease or out of your comfort zone in a way but then you're like it's it's creative and it makes you feel creative when you eat it and mm-hmm. then it opens your eyes to try something else oh well maybe i'll try the oysters i haven't had maybe oysters aren't that far out there but do you think the customers are the same top to bottom? Like if you have somebody dining at Ravenous, are they ever going to make it to the tasting room and do the tasting room people go to Ravenous? Or do you think you're serving different clientele in different parts of the market? Both. Can I say that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah of, the, of course you can. A lot of, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people would eat in all of those area, those restaurants and some people will eat at Ravenous and never even come to Corvino, let mm-hmm. alone the tasting room. So, but for a lot of people, I mean, I'm one of them. I'll eat a tasting menu. I like to eat at bars primarily or pizza is my favorite food, if you know, <laughs> if you know me. But I I love fast fast food and better fast food than the right out of a box. It's not, you know, I like I like fast food like we're doing. Like the French fries. Can we talk about the French fries that Food & Wine called the best they've ever eaten? How did that come about? Did you get a call one day and be like, oh, we tried those. They were great. Well, it's the, the restaurant editor had dined in the restaurant, so we knew that. And so we, But we were surprised when French fries was <laughs> this hot topic. And well, I mean... I mean, they're great. I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cheese aioli that comes with them, just... Mm. Amazing. Now, and now we don't do those fries at Ravenous. And that was a long, that was months of discussion. Really? And there's so many, there's so many factors involved. And that's part of running a restaurant as a business. And you have to 
really looked through all sorts of different areas. One was just the production and the storage space. I don't have it. If you've read that recipe or seen the video, it goes into the in and out of the freezer multiple times. Well, we don't have a big enough freezer space to add a add a restaurant outside that we're still doing the production out of Corvina. So mm. logistically, right there, the the labor involved to do it at a lower price point is really tricky. And then those fries don't travel very well, mm. as good as they are. Is, and we've tested it all sorts of ways. When by the time you get them home, they're just not they're just not as good. So we didn't want to ruin the magic of what we're doing in Corvino with those fries. Gosh, in Corvino, the times we've been is such about timing the entire experience. Right, your staff is so good at delivering course by course. How does any food travel well for ravenous? I've got to imagine that's going to be hard. Well, the the cheeseburger. Let's go. Right, it travels fantastically well. Mm. It, it's a little different than once it's wrapped and 20 minutes later or 30 minutes later, but it's, you know, it's a squishy bun that does okay. It's not that dry bun that soaks up any, anything and gets soggy. It's, it's already squishy. Um, I love the cheeseburger 30 minutes later. <laughs> the, we do a fried chicken sandwich, which I, if you, if you haven't had it, I, I mean, I think it's a reason to talk about our cheeseburger a little less, right? It's really good. Yeah. I'm a really, really big fan and it's it's dark meat chicken, which I don't know why that doesn't hasn't taken off more. Hmm. I don't know what the it's it's funny, I talked to Colby Girls that at, at Rye they charge extra for the white meat chicken on their fried chicken. And I always laugh because all of us chefs are like Dark meat's the best meat, <laughs> like, of course, right? It's, Secret revealed. It's so much right tastier. Now. It's so, it, it's got more t- better texture. It's juicier. It's it's more flavor. It's it's everything. And but everybody wants. And maybe it's the health factor of what white meat chicken. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, we have a chicken thigh and we fry r- the style of breading that we do. It fries super crispy so that the skin over the top is. We leave the skin on. So you get this super crispy sheet of skin on top of this dark meat. The chicken thigh is the best part of the chicken for for me. And then it's on the same bun with iceberg and the, and super sour pickles and chili butter. Yeah, it's it pretty delicious. <laughs> had it at the uh, yeah. recent Cherry Bomb podcast that you guys yeah. had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that my that yeah. travels really well because that we rest all of our chicken because when you when you open super hot chicken out of a fryer it. The juice and the steam comes out and it gets really soggy and it's hard to eat. So one of the things about the fried chicken we do in Corvino and this sandwich is you rest the chicken as long as you cook it and it eats so much better. So the sandwich is already rested. It's not going to steam in the bag. Mm. Like So our chicken sandwich travels really well and fried chicken in general. So I want to know what the tests look like and if you need a test. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it home. (laughs) Um, I mean, do you actually seriously put it in a bag, take it home, and then open it up and say, yeah, this this is acceptable or no, this isn't? Yeah, I did that with fries. So I did that with fries for a long time. And Hmm. apart from all the storage issues and all those different challenges logistically of producing them, the the cost to produce them, they were never good. Hmm. You know, we'd make the fries and rest them on a tray for – Five minutes so the steam came off so they didn't steam in the bag and that's the whole you see those boxes with vents you get fries in from fast food places or the bags are actually porous and let Hmm. air come out but no matter what we and they were a little better when we did that Mm -hmm. but no matter what they were just it just didn't work yeah 
So you'll have tater tots on the menu mm-hmm. right now. So is that- and the fr- so the fries we're doing are really really good. They're just don't you have bolognese fries? Yes. Yeah, so oh my! <laughs> I mean, that's actually. So there's there's kind of starch take. here. There's oh the the <laughs> fry game is strong. I, okay. I love the fries in in a, in a very different way. And yeah, we do this salty seasoning that has. I always laugh and joke when I say a couple of proprietary seasonings. It's, I'm, <laughs> not really, but okay, um, Colonel Sanders. Let's go. <laughs> did, there's uh, like a little bit of our actual seasoning mix that we. Put in the flour for our ch- fried chicken, and then dried mushrooms, which is, has this mm. crazy umami. It's, I mean, it's a natural mm. MSG that comes out of it, and it's so it's the seasoning's super delicious. That sounds so good. I'm I'm ready to run over there now. <laughs> are people coming through the restaurant? So they call the restaurant and they pick it up right there at this point. From at this point, it's the website is ravenouskc.com. Yeah, and you. Jump on there. You can order online for carryout or delivery. You can put a credit card in. It also links to Apple Pay or PayPal or any of Venmo. I think Venmo is on there. So it's super easy. And if somebody has not been to Corvino, your restaurant, it, it's so uh, it, it's dark and calming and cool and giant crow, raven, not a crow, uh, painted on the inside. <laughs> Obviously, to do with your last name, right? Talk a little bit about the aesthetic to the restaurant itself. But we, the it's very dramatic, right? And it's 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 kind of I mean it's inspired by the space, which is interesting. Like we thought we wanted to name the restaurant Corvino, and then we found this space, and we thought of painting gigantic ravens on the wall. That part of that's what came together. It was it was this huge tall ceiling. It was these, you know, the the space has four large concrete pillars in it, and we. Were, we wanted that dramatic thing. There's a minimalistic piece of it too, right? There's a lot of negative space and blank space that works. Um, I feel like it disappears because it. it's dark in a good way. You know what I mean? The negative space. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And but, music is a big part of your evenings at the restaurant? Yes. And that's that's where we came with the supper club concept, um, which I'm so proud of. My wife, my business partner, Christina, she's the general manager, and it was it was her idea. She said, we need to have a, this sense of place and speak to Kansas City, and she was so connected with all of these musicians in town because she'd been friends with them and was into the jazz scene when she moved here, and she helped me start bringing music into the American when I was there. She, it was kind of her idea, and mm-hmm. it was really successful. But when she had this idea for a stage and let's do music, and then she, the supper club concept like there's so many supper clubs by coming around, like reimagine supper clubs across the country, and it just makes me. We were like really, we had that thing figured out. It was a good, <laughs> it was a good move, and it works, and it's fun. And I, I'm not saying they did that because of us. It, it's just it was time to bring back that that thing in a little different way, and we're not the only ones that were thinking that. And is that working pretty well for you? I'm, yes, it's super yeah. fun. I mean, it's. Because it's a lot to add. It's the in craziest music. thing a restaurant would ever do. Is yeah. I mean, even if even if it's the night we don't have a band and you know you have one musician and it's us. You know, if you look at a if you look at a one or two hundred dollars a night in a restaurant that big, it's a small amount of money. But when we have a big band, it could be five six hundred dollars 
or more to bring in that band. And when you add that between a whole year, you're sitting at a lot of money. And for a restaurant that their margin is very small, I mean, it, and it's this is just, a pretty crazy idea. It's just one more thing mm-hmm. to like schedule and make sure everybody's on the same page. And so, yeah, it seems like an, a lot of added added work, but it's it's worked out, it, I take it. Yeah, it gives a yeah. real uh, genuine like sense of place with the restaurant. And it's, yeah. It's fun. And, you know, getting ready or rounding out your third year now, this has been a difficult time in Kansas City's food scene. We've seen some restaurants have to close their doors. You made it through your first year, through your second year. What has that been like to make sure that the community still knows about you? Do people come back a lot? It's been really, really, it's really, really hard. <laughs> Opening a restaurant is like extremely difficult and it's not, it's not opening a restaurant, I would say, but running a restaurant. It's everybody thinks opening before you open is the hard part. It's once you open the doors, mm. it gets really hard, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not, it's not the cooking part. Like my whole career, even as a cook, I mean, you, I remember being back as a cook and you're stressed out about the thing you didn't grab from the walk-in and you have to make that trip back, extra trip back. And you have to, you found out your diced carrots were soggier and you have to redo them and now you're not going to make it and you have to go ask the sous chef for help and he's going to, he's, he's going to give you shit about it. And those will, and then you're a sous chef and you're stressed out about if the dishwasher calls in sick, how do you schedule that? And maybe about ordering, did you order enough fish? You might run out and you might have too much and it might go bad. It's like, none of that stuff stresses me out anymore. Like <laughs> opening, a, opening a restaurant, being a business owner, it's all the other stuff. It's, it, it's a scheduling of musicians and remembering to file the forms so you pay the taxes right and all this stuff with the city. And it's now I look at every other business of any sort in a different way hmm. where people take that leap and go, it's crazy. It's a big leap. And we were just talking with Joe West um, sort of about, you know, he was thinking about doing that and then. I think he's sort of backing off of that right now. It, it's it's a big, big job. But let's back up and find out a little bit about um, how you even got into cooking in the first place. You grew up in Walla Walla, Washington. Mm-hmm. I, and something with something happened there that got you interested in, in food. Well, I just was, and my first job was a dishwashing job. It was a little pizza Pizza joint pizza, called, called Pepe's Pizza. <laughs> it's so funny. I I was just back home, and Pepe's Pizza has this uh, neon. Sorry, I go on lots of little tangents. That's <laughs> what this answer, podcast answer is your for. Original question. <laughs> no, has, keep going. It has this neon sign like up above, like lamp, like streetlight level, like real hot, tall. And it's this guy. I'm assuming it's Pepe, right? It's this Italian <laughs> guy with a pizza pan <laughs> holding out, right? Well, now it's this. I think it's a, I think it's a Chinese restaurant with with a bar and it's a big karaoke bar and the young kids are going to the karaoke bar and they have the cheap shot and but there's still this neon Pepe <laughs> above the it's it's hilarious. So. Survived the souvenir. That's where I started. It was iceberg salads with uh. provolone cheese and shredded ham and ranch and love it. You dip your pizza in the ranch. It wasn't the best pizza in the world, but it's super. I, you know, you know, Lindsay has a pizza connection. That's right. My first job ever was a pizza restaurant here. Yeah, nice, absolutely. <laughs> I, hey, you learn a lot working front or back of the house, right? Absolutely, absolutely. 
She was the takeout girl, she told yep, me. Yep, took to-go orders till I was old enough to serve alcohol. Gotcha. <laughs> nice. Big leagues of serving. So I think p- anybody who's worked in a pizza shop, it's a lot of fun. It's a, <laughs> yeah. It was a great first job. Hmm. What kind of pizza? Um, like, it was like thin, crispy, crispy crust, and they did sandwiches and... Yeah, and so you got kind of bitten by the bug there, or it's I just I think I just I like working nights probably I like the fast pace of it being being busy, and I washed dishes for probably four months, and then they started teaching me how to cook pasta and clean lettuce and do some of the prep stuff. And was this that, a pizza restaurant where you did the dough in the air, anything like that, or no? No, it wasn't. It was not that elaborate. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> um, but I thought it was nowhere near leaving that leaving that job. I was like, I should go try to find a different restaurant, but it wasn't. I'm going to be a chef or hmm. I'm going to do this. So I went and cooked at a, it was like a kind of steakhouse restaurant. Um, for a little while, but then I found another restaurant they'd opened. There was an old hotel in Walla Walla, um, and they renovated and opened a pretty elaborate restaurant in it and brought a couple handful of chefs over from the East Coast. And it was like there was like not a lot in that town. I mean, it's thirty five thousand people. It was, it's not the wine country destination. Is there's dozens of very good restaurants now. Hmm. It's it's transformed a bit. But there was nothing. So I went and I was just, I mean, this kitchen was, it was huge. And it was, it was amazing, the equipment and the, and the number of chefs. I think there was four chefs and then all the cooks. I'd never seen anything really like it. I mean, it, and then the chef I was working for was just kind of like, you know, I just finished high school, I think. And he was just kind of like you're pretty good at this she's like you know you could just do this right and i was like what do you mean by that like go to culinary school i've got some friends who are going to because i saw so us on that point I've got some, he's like he's like what are you gonna pay somebody to teach you how to cook i'm gonna pay you and teach you how to cook and it just kind of went from there and i was like i knew i didn't really want to go to college i was a skateboarder and listened to punk rock and i was good enough in school be but not because i applied myself and worked hard. i wasn't that kid who was going to Go be super studious, and um, so I kind of never looked back. So you start working um, in various restaurants. What did your parents say at that point? They were super supportive. Yeah. They were. They knew. I mean, they were. My parents are very open minded. Um, they're super liberal. They made me. You know, they were just like taught me to question everything and be super, be very open minded as well. So like. A different route to them was not crazy, and that's hmm. college was all they talked about when we were kids. My older, my older siblings went to Amherst and Grinnell. I mean, that's maybe what I was supposed to do, right? <laughs> you know, have those opportunities and parents would support you to go to the, some of the best colleges in the country. And but when I was like, I think this is what I want to do, and I think they were just, they're so supportive. Hmm. I think there's a really interesting debate about. You know, working in the kitchen for years and years and years, that's really how chefs trained, right? They got apprenticeships. I mean, that's the European style anyway. Absolutely. And now culinary school is kind of a requisite for for most people at this point. What do you, where do you fall on that? Would it have been helpful to go to culinary school? Or do you think, um, 
you know, learning and moving through the ranks is really the best way to go. I think it depends who you are and where you are and the timing of it. And I think it can be very good for people. I spent three years at that restaurant in Walla Walla with <clears throat> with the uh, the chef, who's one of my best friends now. I'm actually mm. meeting him in a week in New Orleans. I'm super excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's um, fun. We'll go eat around the town. But that was that three years was my apprenticeship. It was my school. He taught me how to. He started doing things. They were. They had a company. They were buying all these steaks portioned, and it was a great quality program. And a lot of restaurants, it's not a hack move to buy a steak that's already portioned. It's actually really smart if you do it from a good company. But he's like, I wanted to learn to butcher, and he's from then on, he didn't buy any. It was all primal cuts or bigger pieces, and he taught me how to butcher everything. And then we went into fish fabrication, and then all these other things. So it's I learned all that from him. It was it was super it was super cool for me. Um, but I, I think culinary school is really good for a lot of people. I think the problem, I think culinary schools came about here and got really bad. I mean, the Cordon Bleu becoming unaccredited and closing is a prime example. And I've met, I've been, I worked with so many kids and then employed so many kids who came out of those programs that are just super rapid fast track programs where they just touch a bunch of stuff and are shot out of the program with a huge amount of debt and they're not good. They're not good student loans. They're, they're like high interest credit cards. It's, it's robbery. Um, and that, so when I was at that point, that's good. Takes me back. I was debating what to do. And the court on blues, like we give you a two year education in one year. And to me, I was just really obvious. That's a sham. <laughs> like <laughs> all I'd been taught so far and was realizing is that everything you learn in a kitchen takes time. Like you're shown how to, cut something then you need to cut it thousands of times before you're even close to good at it so how two-year education in one year that's big, i don't know how everybody fell for that but i think trade schools are very are a very important thing and i think bringing back good trade schools i think we need more people with going to trade school and not getting a bachelor's degree right yeah uh, i think there could be a case made for that yeah. in certain professions especially. I, mean, and I, I didn't come up with that on my own. I've been reading about that and hearing yeah. about that. And it's like, it just makes so much sense. And what are we, where are we, we're lacking all these, the workforce and all of these trades in our country. And right? Well, you guys are kind of lacking workforce just in the hospitality industry, right? I constantly, chefs are always asking me. All know, over the world. Do you I know mean, a dishwasher? I, do you know a sous chef? Yeah. Do you know a cook? And I don't, I don't know if it's, I, I hear that that's all over the world. I don't think that's just here. I don't know if it's for different reasons oh, really? in Europe or in Asia or, but yeah, it's good, good help in our industry. It's hard to find everywhere. Yeah. So, um, who did you work with and who, who taught you the best after you left Washington? I went to, I went to Chicago mm-hmm. and I think I had my older brother lived there. So I had a way to, Go stay with somebody while you figure out what you're gonna do, and I, I was kind of set on. I had a connection. I knew somebody who worked at the Peninsula Hotel in Chicago, and it's like it was pretty new. And it was for a hotel. It had it had avenues, which was a five star, five diamond restaurant at that time. And I'd heard they were bringing in Graham Elliott Bowles, who just 
one food, wine, 10 best chefs. I was like, I'm going to go work there. And so it was that opportunity to just move to Chicago without any plan because I packed a, two, two big duffel bags and stayed with my brother. Um, and that was the only thing I went and applied to, which looking back, it was kind of crazy maybe, but not really. And they didn't have any positions at avenues, but they said, you want to, and I, I was a sous chef at the time. So I've been promoted to, I did that whole apprenticeship with the chef's name's bear. Um, and he made me a sous chef at the end. And it happens to a lot of young cooks. If you work hard and you're smart and you apply yourself and you're reliable, they'll, there's nobody else to promote you. You're probably not really ready for it. Like I did a really good job and I was super responsible and I learned a lot, but, um, they're like, we don't have a job in avenues. They're like, we don't have a sous chef job. And I was scared. I thought big city, this is going to be crazy. Everybody's light years ahead of me. And they offered me a cook job in the lobby restaurant. So I took it and I was in orientation with Graham Elliott. So he was starting at the same time. So I was like, here's a superstar chef. It's, um, and then I got in that kitchen and I was like, wait, cooking's the same everywhere. They're not all light years ahead of me. Like mm -hmm. everything I learned is like applies in this big fancy kitchen in Chicago. So it was really, it was really cool to see that. Like it's a universal language, right? It's, you can take it anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and there was four restaurants in that hotel. There was a Chinese restaurant that, that was amazing, still amazing. I was just I was just having a conversation with somebody about how that's one of the most underlooked Asian restaurants in that city. Like, it's so good. The dim sum kitchen, I was just infatuated with it. What's it called? Um, For Shang anybody who Shanghai Terrace. Shanghai Terrace. It's so good. I know it's that, it's that classic, like, really good Chinese chefs with a really fun Western influence. Mm -hmm. I mean, there'd be, like, there'd be, like, lobster dumplings and classically with, like, the shrimp and lobster dumplings you put there'd be a little cube pieces of fat bag or little cube pieces of of foie gras instead things like that those little western touches are like creative changes in food hmm. and that's kind of where i come to now of like well let's do donuts with seaweed and trout rows like taking that creative like turn things around a little bit um approach to things mm -hmm. so from chicago what made you want to come to kansas city I, I went to a lot of places in between. You <laughs> did, yeah. Um, and I was I was in Dallas. Right. And I was working, I went to Dallas to work for a, a French chef, um, which I was kind of looking for my own restaurant, not a restaurant to own, but I was kind of looking to, for my like first exact chef job, and I wasn't finding the right one. I got an offer at places that I didn't think were good enough or I gotten turned down from things that I wasn't qualified or whatever. And somebody, a friend of mine was like, I know this chef Bruno Davian, he, he needs an exec sue and you should go work for him. So I reached out to him and they pretty quickly put it together and I took the job and I went to Dallas. Um, but so leaving there, I was like, I want my own restaurant. And it was like, a recruiter had found me for, uh, reached out to me about the American restaurant. And it was like, I'd never really thought of Kansas City or heard of Kansas City. Hmm. 
that struck me when I interviewed you the first time. I think it was over the phone before you came. And I'm like, have you had you ever been to Kansas City before? And you're like, no. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> pretty big leap. Um, but it turned out to be a good one. You had a really interesting uh, – you, you have to try out before you come to a new restaurant, particularly the American. Do you remember your tryout at all? I heard some good feedback from that. Yeah, it was – so you so you come cook for for people and that was actually you have to prove yourself. It's not just showing up right and yeah. starting fresh. You have to <laughs> well, kind, if, kind of woo them. If if you're organized, you prepare that menu really in advance and you bring a lot of your ingredients and components. And so ideally, you're in a kitchen where you can pull that off. Um, and with Bruno, I was so it was kind of an open book. He knew I was looking for that next thing, and he was keeping his ears out. And I knew that he was, um. Looking for, I knew that he was looking for investors to open a restaurant, and he wasn't in a hurry. He was going to do it right, which he has that restaurant now, and it's amazing. Um, but I was in New York. I'd been sent on task force. I was at the mansion on Turtle Creek, which is the Rosewood Hotel. So they lost their chef at the Carlisle, which is a super old school spot in New York. So they they sent me to help out and run their kitchen for like five or six weeks. So I'd been in New York and I was away from home and kind of when I got this opportunity. So I packed, I packed a lot. I wrote a menu there and packed a lot of stuff out of that kitchen. Um, so I came super prepared and uh, yeah, I showed up in Kansas city. I'd never been there. And it's like in this weird mall complex, the crown center. Right? <laughs> I, I was like, I was, I can't even remember. I, I must've stayed at the Westin or something. I must've, um, yeah, I walked into that restaurant. And I was just like, "What is this place?" This is, I looked it up a little bit, and I I had heard of the American restaurant, and from there's this blog, Ulterior Epicure, some of you. So yeah. that's that's how people know of the American restaurant in Kansas City. And I I'd I'd seen the I'd read this blog, and it was like that's where I'd heard that name from. And I was asking a chef friend about it. it was like. He put that together for me. He's like, oh, you know, Altier Epicure, it's his favorite restaurant. Hmm. I was like, oh. Um, but yeah, it was bizarre. It was to cook and there was nobody there. There was Josh Ian's was a sous chef who helped me when I from Happy Gilles, when I did my uh, tasting. Mm-hmm. It was fantastically helpful. Um, I was really happy when I came on that I got to work with that guy for a little bit. Hmm. It was super fun. Um, Big fan of what they do. But yeah, is I had really second thoughts about taking that job because I was like, I think this restaurant I don't know, it felt it felt neglected, but I guess which the American was, then I came to find out, right? Um but I felt like I could come in and it was a it was a huge opportunity. I started asking chefs about it. I was like, this restaurant and this that just had this great reputation and all these chefs that they knew had gone through there. And I just decided it was a place where I could really take that leap and cook my food. And and you made a lot of changes while you were there um, to loosen it up a little bit. You started bringing in music. And I remember bringing my children in on a review, <laughs> told my son he needed to, you know, wear a coat and everything and a tie. And... Uh, <laughs> When we got there, he looked at the person in the polo shirt next at the table next to us, and he looked at me. and He goes, "You lied," <laughs> but still one of uh, one of those meals that 
and I think they really remember, you know, from all the reviewing that I did. So kudos to you. Uh-huh. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they remember that. And I don't know, if you drag your kids around to as many restaurants as I've been dragging my kids around to over the years, <laughs> you hope that one stands out and maybe that they learn the finer table manners at somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, when you decide that it's time to, to move on, talk talk a little bit about what's going on in dining because, you know, it felt kind of like this this institution was not what it once was. And casual versus fine dining, where are we in the world? You were known for fine dining. Now you're known for ravenous. What What's going on that chefs chefs can feel about fine dining and how people want to eat? I think... I think it's it's all important. I don't, you know, you keep people talking about is fine dining dead or these there's so many chefs are getting into fast casual. I think fine dining and tasting menus is as big as ever. You're nodding your head, so I think you agree. But like, there's more, there's as many or more tasting menus than there ever has been. They're different. I think they're more. They're kind of more about. It's always been about an experience that experience is just a little different. Mm-hmm. It's less about formality, maybe in that in that I don't want to I don't want to say it wrong, but almost in that that staunchy pompous way. It's a, all the details are as important as ever, but it's more it's more about that experience. It's more about about the food and the hospitality and being it's- in a Making you comfortable. I, I think fine dining used to make it used to make me uncomfortable. I don't know. Well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, it's about an experience, right? And if you're uncomfortable during it, and you don't know which wine glass to use, and you are worried about the bill the whole time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, or that you'll order the wrong wine, or you know, whatever. I think that so experience is that what people are looking for? They want a casual, comfortable experience. Not just any experience. I, I think so. Right. I mean, our my kids will probably never experience it, but um, most people my age would probably, if they've gone to this place, experience that where you were required to wear a jacket or a tie. It's just like that. What restaurant does that anymore? I mean, it's still weird when somebody wears a baseball hat into a tasty menu spot or something, <laughs> maybe. But so, do you have a dress code? Mm-mm. No need for that anymore. I don't think. I mean, we might have a loose guideline somewhere. I don't think so. Though. I think I read a loose guideline somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe no, like no um, shirts, no sh- no shirts, no shoes, no service, something like that. <laughs> something about sports stuff, maybe, and you know, a little bit up, more upscale in the tasting room. And I think that's just about maybe building expectations for people so they don't. Because you can also feel uncomfortable if you're underdressed in a place where you feel like you should be. Definitely. Maybe but I bet people wear anything festive. into the bar at Corvino. And it, we hear all the time, oh, I thought I needed to dress. Now I feel overdressed. Or like, hmm. or not, not that they feel overdressed, but they're like, I just come in here with, after work with whatever I was wearing. Or mm-hmm. That's really important to us. Yeah, so the scene is really, <clears throat> I think it's changing a lot. But there's, there's also an economic uh, thing to having your high-end tasting room where the costs are higher, maybe a middle ground where mm-hmm. you've got Corvino, and maybe maybe the fast casual, right, where you can generate quicker turnaround and 
more total volume, right? Definitely. So is that a model that a lot of chefs are, are working on in order to stay viable in a really tough restaurant economy? I think there's a... No, I was in L.A. last year for the Food and Wine Festival. And a couple... We went to a handful of restaurants that had four or five concepts in one. That's why, kind of where I got the idea of... When the I ghost knew, restaurant? When I knew about? we weren't going to... I'd heard of these rest, virtual restaurants that don't even have a, it's a kitchen but no storefront and it's only carry out, things like that. But doing it out of an existing restaurant, there's a, there were so many restaurants. There's Republic in Santa Monica and Justa. These restaurants have, Republic has, does breakfast. They do a carry out cafe and coffee bakery concept within it. Um, It's like, turns into a much different, like, dinner thing there's a little some sort of little market in it and then there's a little window outside where it's like an ice cream shop so there's like five things going on in one space i mean it just makes sense it's it's like why when you're paying your overhead you already have your administrative costs and you're already paying insurance on this place why do that five times when you could do five things out of it i think that's so there's that part of it but i also think the the less service there's an economic piece of like getting in the fast casual and it's simpler. You can hire less. So when I said it was more ravenous, was more accessible as far as who I could cook for. It's also much more accessible of who I can hire mm. and give a job to and what I can teach them. And that's really attractive. I mean, I think that's really attractive to a lot of chef and restaurant operators, owners. Is it, it's almost like it's more doable. Like, if I was going to open another, like, full-service, high-end restaurant, it would just be, especially in this town, it would just be so daunting to me. I think like, I've got it. But to do something fast casual where you can hire much different people, it's counter-service. You don't – the logistics are so much simpler on a level. And then I can give jobs to different people that would never probably wouldn't apply or wouldn't have the experience or – in the Corvino, and then I can teach them, and then maybe I can promote them and give them a new job at Corvino. How cool would that be, right? So, like, a way to grow You're people. culinary yeah. school. <laughs> Are there two <laughs> distinct staffs, like a staff for Ravenous and a staff for Corvino, or will there be when there, you open up the space? That's, that's kind of growing. So it's right now it's kind of the hybrid. You know, we, we added to our prep team in the morning, but there were... They're doing this ravenous piece. When we go outside, it's going to be more staff and more staff that's solely for that piece. What about the neighborhood you're in? The crossroads has just changed so dramatically. I feel like every year, and even since you guys have opened three years ago, uh, what key will ravenous play in like first Fridays? And what do you see? And what's it been like to be there? It. I mean, it's it's outdoors, and we're gonna, we're going to serve cocktails and beer and wine it's gonna it's gonna be super fun for first friday i mean it's gonna be a lot to manage and figure out too but (laughs) so the outdoor space talk a little bit about where where exactly in relationship to the restaurant and it's is there a door to it can they come into the restaurant or is it actually a separate entrance so corvino's the ground level of corrigan station on 19th and walnut so on 
the build the new building they built on 19th and Main is the same uh, developer. So they basically took the alley in between the two and built a park. Oh. So I want to say green space. There's there's like planters and trees. There's not actual grass, but it's I guess it's green space, right? So like a courtyard. Yeah, like a a parklet. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Those are real. Those are real. Is that a real thing? And they're calling it. They're calling it a park. I mean, they 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 put a sign that says "park" in the front of it, and it's it's not public space, but there's a gate that's open during the day, and anybody can walk in there, right? Um, it's so it's taking like you know, in a lot of those commercial real estate buildings, there's a rooftop that the tenants can access, things like that. So it's taking that kind of a space, but then right in the middle of it, we built. So we partnered with them and built. It's a it's like a cube with a counter. There's a full hood and full kitchen in there. There's refrigeration. There's a there's there's a huge griddle and fryers and we're gonna be cooking there. It's it's like a that counter little counter spot you walk up at a ballpark, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's so you, you can come right off a of nineteenth, walk right into the park and walk up and swipe your card and have a have a have a beer and a cheeseburger. What was I need to know the moment the light bulb went off and realized our name is Corvino. It means raven and ravenous means. To, I mean, what was was that long planned or twenty thousand name ideas? Really? <laughs> Later, I circled back to this one I jotted down on a list because I just. But it's so, so perfect. It seems our, so obvious so, now, right? Well, our, my wife and I, our daughter Brooks. Was the sounding board? We're f- we figure a sixteen-year-old girl is on pace of what's cool before we are, <laughs> right? right? So we just she was our big like, is this cool? Is this gonna work? Is this? <laughs> and I and so many things were shot down, and so many things were thrown out, and we were just trying to. There's things we were like, I think this is cool, and then mention it to one other friend, and they're like, Yeah, did you think about this connotation? And we're like, Oh god, because the last thing you want is that in any sort of name of a restaurant but especially something that's supposed to be so approachable right um i forget what name we were playing with that i like but it it had this it it had it had some you know if it if it had made it sound too fancy or it made it sound mm-hmm. too confusing or you just didn't want any of that we we know about naming naming's hard because chew diligence was, yeah. a, was a hard name to come up with <laughs> a pun generator helped us well the first the first day first episode. And, Hour before the hour before the show. Brooke Brooke (laughs) loves puns. She's very punny. (laughs) Me too. She'd love this show. (laughs) (laughs) Puns, Um, alliteration. I love it all. Yeah. And I, I was sitting there with it was the three of us, and I was going back to this old list, and I was like, "Well, there's this one that I thought was cool, and I didn't even bring it up because I thought you guys would laugh at me." I was like, "Ravenous," and they're like, "That's the name. It's done." (laughs) (laughs) And it was partly that it was so perfect, it's so good. But it was also that we were just so done with trying to figure out this name. And we we're so worried that we, it's funny looking back because we weren't. This was in pre-spring of last year when we thought we were going to open in late spring. And we, we had way more time than we really <laughs> thought we did. But who wants to spend four more months coming up with a name for a restaurant? No. <laughs> but it, it's nerve-wracking. It's going to be the wrong name and it's mm-hmm. going to suck. Or I mean, you, I think if. 
you did something like that and the food was good enough, that everything else was good enough, you could change the name, I think. But it was nerve-wracking to just do something and then everybody laughed at it. <laughs> I, I think it's pretty perfect. It is uh, a yeah. great play off of the raven on the wall in, in Corvino. So, and then, you know, playing off your name, it's just perfect. And Corvino is not ever going anywhere, but if it – we. One of our things was if you took Corvino away, mm. would this stand alone? And I, I think it would be a really cool fast casual name if it had no connotation to a Raven or Corvino. Yeah. yeah it's just. So are you, are you thinking about more ravenous spots down the road? Is this a template for something? That's uh, it's like it's a test kitchen. It's a, yeah. it's a hot dog cart <laughs> outside of 11 Mass. I, it's, it's an opportunity to get this food out there and – um develop it and yeah, I mean it's a it's an interesting space because it's it's sort of seasonal in a not in a town that has crazy seasons mm. I mean yeah. it was 45 degrees at midnight last night what was going I know. on and it was 15 <laughs> degrees tailgating Sunday yeah <laughs> you can't guess it's going to snow rain and ice on Friday <laughs> it's crazy yeah happy restaurant week as, as long as <laughs> oh we don't get gosh. a snowstorm on Valentine's Day weekend, like last, mm-hmm. so we were talking about it as we walked in here. Mm-hmm. The snowstorm the first week of restaurant week turned out to not be disastrous this year, but last year was horrible. All winter last year, we heard from restaurant owners was was very difficult. It right? Took the in, so we lost that first weekend of restaurant week. There was another snowstorm in January where, it, I mean, you could so if you look at a restaurant, it's crazy in the crossroads, and I don't know, say, say you're gonna do. $10,000 on a Friday night. If there's a big snowstorm, you might do five or six. Like, that's really hard for a restaurant. Like, so you have multiple weekends in January. Restaurant week is this super influx of revenue. All these people come in to eat. So you lose that. You lose another weekend. And then we had Valentine's Day weekend, and there was a huge snowstorm. And it was, we did half. I think, I think we probably lost half the revenue over a four-day span last year on Valentine's Day. So I mm. really think it took the whole year for most restaurants to catch up for it. And then That's uh, brutal. It, was, it was really hard. I think a lot of restaurants have pointed out that um, restaurant week was a, when I was interviewing them is a big thing. Um, and I was actually talking to first timers who were getting on board, even though they were not necessarily new restaurants. And they were saying, that if you have a January like we had last year, you could just lose your restaurant. It mm. just really is tough. Um, and I don't think we all as a public appreciate just how how tight the margins are on restaurants and that one month, one weekend can really make a big difference in survival. Yeah, it's hard. We were talking to Selena Tio talking about how really closely as a business owner, you have to watch those margins and food cost. And is that something that really does take up a lot of your time too? It, yes, but that's, once you get that, it's, I mean, our formula's there. Like we, mm. I mean, when we, when we bring new products and we cost it out and we put it on there and that's, Labor, you have to constantly, constantly watch. But the revenue is the issue that restaurants are having. It's it's enough people. Mm. It's having enough people come in. You know, when you when you could do 
when you can hit a hundred on the weekends, the crossroads you're asking about the crossroads. When you can hit a hundred on the weekends and then you're doing five. I'm just picking a number. Fun, this isn't like yeah. a people or yeah. a dollar, but you know, when you're when you're at a hundred on the weekends and your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday could be zero or five, like how do you do that? Mm. So then, what do you do? Do you send all that staff home because then their livelihood's screwed? But labor is your biggest cost. It's what kill, so so you have to find the middle ground of like keeping people busy. There's stuff. There's always the business isn't there, but you can catch up on the clean and blah blah. blah. So then you keep the employees. You know you lose your labor a little bit. So you're trying to find that balance, right? But if we were just at like a hundred restaurant weeks, I love restaurant week. I hear a lot of restaurant people hate it. It's like for eleven days you're at a hundred. Hmm. It's that's awesome. But it, and then I'm like, why can't it be like this? <laughs> Do you get people from restaurant week that decided to try you guys that come back, or can you tell? Yeah, we get we get a, we get some, but I mean, a lot of it, no, and a lot of it, we see them again next year, and I I think it's I think it's unfortunate because restaurant week is an interesting. It was very different when I was at the American, and you're trying to do that price point. If you're at a restaurant like that, like if you're like we don't do it in our tasting menu, how could you? Like so, for somebody like. Like Blue Stem does a tasting menu. I'm not sure their restaurant week format, but like if you're doing restaurant week in Blue Stem dining room, you're just operating at a huge loss. But like our supper club is like, it's the same price point. Hmm. Like yeah. we give you three dishes and it's the same price point. Like I'm really proud of our restaurant week menu because it's our entire menu. We took off our caviar set that doesn't work into it. And we took off, we just put on like a 25 ounce ribeye that, that we actually would cut a couple different. We had a thirty-four ounce over New Year's and a twenty couple twenty-five ounces. We took that off because that doesn't make sense. But we left the r- entire rest of the menu on. And there's a handful of dishes that there's a whole fried fish. That, it's an extra fifteen dollars if you want to choose that for one of yours. But there's a couple things like that. There's a couple like raw seafood dishes where it's an extra five dollars, an extra eight dollars. But that allowed us to keep all that on the menu. The majority of the menu is just it just all worked into the price point. So those. People could come do this any time of the year and they can afford to eat at a restaurant and so many other restaurants. So I don't know. Maybe that's my preach is come support your restaurants every day of the year. What's the biggest seller? What's the dish that sells most during restaurant week? This year, gnocchi bolognese. Oh, man. Have you had that? Uh, yeah. You I, have. Yes. Um, <laughs> the spiciness was awesome. And the Parmesan froth. Am I remembering yeah. that right? Yeah. Here's what we, I wonder how many people do this. Um, we definitely overordered because you share. This, it's yeah. not like one plate per person at your restaurant. Um, but happily forgot that that was coming. <laughs> We're like, yeah. doesn't matter. Get ready. And it yes. was worth it. Brisket and bacon in the yeah. bolognese. And lots of different dried chili chili so you get all those different spices it's that slow yeah. warm one the fast so it's really balanced heat it's really the same approach as a chili hmm. and that's what it always reminds me of and that's why when we talk about the economical like streamlining of things that's why that bolognese is what goes on the fries and ravenous and that yeah so I, it's like chili cheese fries right it's it's a warm slow heat yeah that's so good that was my husband's favorite dish of the dinner by far well that's my i'm not I'm, I'm, it's a ways down the road, but there's this idea of a fast casual concept that I would do that's gnocchi bolognese. And you guys make like, gnocchi? Like a Caesar salad, garlic bread. 
gnocchi bolognese and probably like soft serve and like i don't know like frozen campari slushies and just like a real minimalistic but like really good you're making gnocchi in the window and yeah. we had the conversation we uh that was one of the things we asked for for christmas is gift cards to corvino so we could uh, go back i love it and we were already talking about okay now next time we go what are we not going to get so we can try something new and it's been like a point of contention for several weeks now <laughs> you have to get the burger and you have to get the gnocchi and we'll try to work something else in okay i have to ask about the malts when we're at ravenous yeah What's a good malt? I don't think I know what I'm, what what defines a malt. I mean, we've got to we've got to finish up with this malt thing. I mean, it's, a, it's a milkshake with malted milk in it. But so, what does that mean? I like, the I milk love, is malted. I <laughs> love I love malts and. Well, what's the difference from a shake to a malt? I guess is what I'm trying to say. What's I, I'm not. I'm not sure I'm clear, but... A I'm malt is a shake, but a shake is not necessarily a malt, right? Uh-huh. uh-huh. So a malt is a shake that has... has malted milk, milk in, in it. Malted milk in it. Okay. And I love malted milk, and I think... So obviously, f- it's a very old-school thing, so there's been a taste for it for a long time, but it, I think maybe it's gone away and... So flavor-wise, tell it's us... coming back. ...what to expect. Well, the, the big one with us is we make malted milk ice cream, so it's the m- malted milk is actually infused into the cream, so... It, it's a must more like full robust as opposed to most places you take vanilla ice cream and a scoop of malted milk powder and spin it in the, so we, we do put more malted milk powder in it when we make the blend the milkshake, but it's already infused into the ice cream and it's, it's salty. Salty. <laughs> what, kind of, what flavors do you guys have? Right now we do a vanilla malt. We do a chocolate malt. And we do cookies and cream, which is actually black truffle and malt. So when I get, Ooh. like last year in the Paragord truffle season, we trim all our truffles and make ice cream with it. And it looks like cookies and cream because it's speckled like cookies and cream. But it, so it tastes like cookies and cream because you see that and think that. <laughs> but it also tastes like cookies and cream because there's that, the earthiness and like a Paragord black truffle is very similar to the earthiness and like that cocoa Chocolate, in yeah. the Cookie, of, mm, cookies that's and cream. fascinating. Yeah, that's just kind of my silly sense of humor. Um, I, it's it's really delicious, but it's fun. <laughs> I mean, it's a twenty dollars milkshake, and why I don't know. I I thought a Pulp Fiction was, was it the five dollars shake, right? A lot when we did that, and it's just it's not there to make me rich. It's just for fun and it, my silly sense of humor. And when we go outside, we will we're gonna have one with whiskey with bourbon. Oh, that sounds great. And then we're. Probably throw on another flavor too. So what's what's the outside opening date? Do we have one yet? When the weather's nice. Just whenever. <laughs> when the weather's nice enough to open and not close again. And yeah, we'll that, that's the trick. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that's. But you're all permitted up and ready. Hopefully that's March. March. Oh, so just around the. Corner. I don't know. Is are you gonna? Are you? Do you think about like? Is that like, April? Is that? It just could depend on the year. Well, Big Twelve tournament coming. coming up. That's my point. Mm-hmm. It's coming. I'm excited. Oh my goodness. <laughs> The $20 truffle shake. Malt. Malt. The $20 truffle, truffle malt. malt. See, I just did it. And and now that I know that that's what you want for your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Gift and card bur- for you. Bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds fantastic. Thank you for coming on, Chef Michael Corvino. This was so fun. This is a blast. Huh. Can't wait to try I that don't malt. ever talk this much this early in the morning. <laughs> This early. (laughs) Almost my dinner time. (laughs) 
Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for coming on True Diligence. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Blue schools were mentioned in this episode. NPR reports that in 2019, the parent company of Le Cordon Bleu North America agreed that almost 180,000 students would not have to pay back their student loans to the company at schools, including Le Cordon Bleu campuses in North America, which have also since closed. You can find more on our story online at KSHB.com, where we link to that NPR report. (laughs) 